Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Do Talk About That Here. We are the advocates from Safe Place Sexual Assault Center, and we started this podcast as a way to talk about subjects that might normally be considered taboo. We often hear things like, that's a sensitive subject, or we can't talk about that here. But during this podcast, nothing is off the table. We're not doctors, psychologists, or attorneys. We're just some advocates from a sexual assault center who thinks it's time to talk about sensitive subjects. Please consult a medical therapist or legal professional for advice on any of these topics. This is Nicole and Irina, and we are honored to be joined by advocacy superstar, Leah Green. So Leah Green has been involved in the anti-violence movement since 2010, first as a volunteer and then as an advocate, and currently as a technical assistance provider. At the Resource Sharing Project, she provides training and technical assistance to state coalitions and rural programs across the country on issues related to creating sustainable sexual assault services in rural communities. So thank you so much for joining us, Leah. We are so excited to have you on today. Um, is there anything else you want us to know about you or the work that you do as we get started off here? Um, I'm so glad to be here. Maybe the only thing uh, that would also be helpful is to know that I am a survivor of child sexual abuse who currently people see me as an adult. So I am an adult survivor of child sexual abuse. Thanks for sharing that, Leah. And I, I, um, I know that's kind of where we're going in this um, podcast today is to talk about adult survivors of child sexual abuse. So um, what kind of things might be important for folks to know about child sexual abuse and how that affects folks into adulthood? That is a great and very large question. <laughs> yes, sorry, putting you on the spot here. <laughs> no, that is okay. Um, so currently that is the project that I'm working on is sort of helping programs understand how to meet the needs of adult survivors of child sexual abuse. So currently my whole life is sort of dedicated to thinking about this sort of big question. So I think maybe just the first place I'll start is, is prevalence, which is that currently we, the statistics we have say that about one in four girls and about one in six boys experiences sexual violence before the age of 18. And so that is just vastly huge numbers is, is always how I like to think of it. Like that is a huge portion of my family, my friend group, my community, when I try to think about that number in relation. And so it is, um, in my best interest as a community member and a kind person to um, know more about uh, folks who've experienced child sexual abuse. Um, I, I think a, another really huge thing I think about when I think about that is that when you are under 18 and you first experience some form of sexual violence, you are still, you're just so young. You are still so much learning about the world, how it works, your, your body, your relationship to other people. Um, whether you're three or you're 17, there's still so much that you're learning about how to be with other people, about what love is, about 
how to build trust with other people about what your own boundaries are. And so when you first experience sexual abuse at such a young age, all those areas of your life are going to be impacted. Um, and we were just talking about this actually before we hit record, but something that's really important to me is that we talk about child sexual abuse, not just from the perspective of children who've experienced it, but also that those children grow up into adults who are still carrying um, the lessons they learned from that sexual abuse into their adulthood. And it is whether you disclosed in childhood and got support or not, you're still having to carry on for the rest of your life and um, having so many areas of your life kind of impacted into adulthood. And so I just always want us to remember those adults. And the last thing I just maybe want to say at the beginning is that, um, that when we're talking about those numbers of one in four girls and one in six boys, there's also a caveat that there are much higher rates of sexual violence for folks of color, for folks with disabilities, for folks in the queer community. And really what we're talking about is really just folks that people feel like they can harm with impunity. And I think that's really important to, to remember as we sort of set this conversation up and moving forward. I think those are kind of some really important things to know kind of right off the bat. Wow, those are so many very important things and there are so many things and directions that I could kind of go in. And for me, gosh, I, I feel like people don't always recognize how prevalent it really is. Those statistics that you shared are just so huge. And if we think about it, you know, if I'm at the grocery store and I'm counting off every four people or every six men that I see, that's a huge number of people that are affected, right? Um, and I, I just really don't think that people always recognize that. So I appreciate you bringing that conversation to the table. I also just really wanna dive into those lifetime effects um, because I, I think that that's also not talked about or normalized as much as it perhaps should be. I know I constantly have conversations with folks where they're saying, you know, this happened to me when I was really little and I am struggling with X, Y, and Z, you know, is that normal? What's going on? How do I fix this? Not that, you know, anybody needs to be fixed, but yeah, I, I just want to see what you have to say about that. That's such a good point. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to my therapist, fix this and I'm working in this field and know everything that I know. And still I would love to have it fixed for sure. But you're right, it, it, there's no easy fix. Um, I have to find it for myself as do all survivors. So yeah, I think, so thinking about some of those lifetime effects, the, the first I wanna mention is just silence. I think silence and isolation and secrecy gets really ingrained at a young age. Often folks who've experienced child sexual abuse um, have been groomed in some way by the person that hurt them to believe that this is what love is, or um, if it's in the context of maybe a religious faith that like this is how God shows his love to you, or some of these um, some of these grooming tactics uh, so that survivors know they're not supposed to tell anyone and this is what's supposed to be happening to me. And so that like silence and isolation gets really ingrained at young age. And also, you know, we know that about 80% of folks that experience child sexual abuse 
knew the person that harmed them. When you're, I mean, when you're thinking about children, it's who has access to children, and that's often family members, caretakers, um, religious communities, daycare centers, things like that, people that have access to children. And so often children really intimately know the person that hurt them, and there's a pretty significant chance that that person was in their family. Um, and also there's this uh, notion, obviously I think we can all start to think about the complex, the complexity that comes from the person that you, that harmed you um, being someone in your family or someone that lives with you. Um, I think there's a lot there that we can all sort of naturally see the ways that that might hurt you. But also um, I hear from a lot of survivors that whether the person that hurt them was in their family or not, the fact that you were under 18 when it happened and in you know the care of your family just makes family dynamics really complicated. Maybe it was you know someone at the school or you know in your soccer league that hurt you, it's not someone in your family, but still there's this really complexness that comes to the relationship with your family when when you're under 18, they're supposed to be the ones taking care of you and making you feel safe and listening to you. And so um, there's just a lot of complex family dynamics that can last well, you know, well beyond childhood, obviously. Um, and so uh, also sort of thinking about when children first uh, disclose sexual violence, it's most of the time not going to happen in childhood because that secrecy is so ingrained you knew the person that harmed you, they might still be a part of your life, whether you want them to be or not. Um, and so often, you know, disclosing in childhood doesn't happen. But even if you do, even if you're one of like the brave kids that figures out how to tell someone and that adult believes you and does something about it, there's just so much then that that happens into adulthood, that even if somehow you were able to hold the person accountable and um, maybe you were given lots of therapy in childhood, maybe this is the perfect case and everyone did everything right to help you, you still have to live the rest of your life with that experience. And so there's still so much to grapple with um, into adulthood. And that's just sort of the best case scenario. Um, most people aren't able to tell in childhood um, for a lot of survivors, it comes up in adulthood after some sort of inciting event is my best words for it. So I just was doing an interview with an adult survivor of child sexual abuse last week who said it was when they were in rehab and sort of having to grapple with um, why it is that they were abusing drugs and alcohol and in this supportive um, community that they were realizing a lot of what happened in childhood and why it was that they gravitated to drugs and alcohol. Um, for others, it's when they're gonna give, um, they're, they're pregnant with a child or maybe their own children were the age um, that they were when it happened. I think that happens for a lot of people when, you, um, when you're a child and you don't have a concept of the world yet, it can feel um, really easy to blame yourself and feel like you contributed to it. But when you see a child that was six, seven, eight, 14, 15, when the age you were, then it happened, you see how small they are and how vulnerable they were. And you know, you know, that child could not have done anything to cause that 
And so if you can apply that to yourself, I think that inspires a lot of people to first sort of name it for themselves and, and seek help. Um, I spoke to another survivor recently who shared that it was when they were in college and their psychology class was watching a video about sort of the reunification of a family after the father had sexually abused the children. And so it's just, it's often in, in your adulthood when you're really confronted with it in this way that you can't look away. And then suddenly you have to sort of grapple with what has happened. Um, either because you have forgotten or tucked it away in some part of your brain, or you've just been really good at like holding it at a distance from yourself and suddenly you can't do that anymore. And so um, that's sort of not exactly the question you asked me, but I think kind of leads us to the place of then starting to, for a lot of survivors, unpack all the ways that the child sexual abuse has impacted their, you know, their life into adulthood. And so for a lot of survivors, that's health has been the impact into adulthood. Um, A lot of uh, children who are, a lot of adults who are sexually abused as children have a lot of chronic pain issues or autoimmune disorders like for fibromyalgia or migraines is really common. Just the way that your your body and your brain take on that trauma. And then a lot of other survivors, uh, certainly myself included, have problems with health associated with not wanting to access like proactive healthcare, avoiding healthcare. Um, So avoiding dentistry or going to the gynecologist or just avoiding those like yearly appointments that we have um, can have, you know, negative effects on your health um, long-term but often happen because the healthcare system can be really a very triggering place to be, can bring up a lot of our trauma, even when we don't know it, um, a feeling of, of anxiety and uncertainty and an authority figure having some say over your body, um, all kinds of things like that can feel really hard to grapple with. And a lot of survivors don't even know why that's what they feel. They just know that um, it doesn't feel good to go to the doctor and so they avoid it. And it can take a long time to start to sort of unpack these things and name them for yourself. I think a lot of that is the healing from child sexual abuse is being able to kind of pick all these things apart and name them for yourself. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I'm hearing so much from you about how, you know, you're learning these things at such a young age that it makes it normal for us you know, for somebody who had these experiences at, you know, those developmental milestones, you, you just think, oh my gosh, like, this is just how things are. This is what life is like. This is what love is like. This is what, um, you know, my experience in my body is like. And so to, um, be able to rewire and relearn that in adulthood is, um, you know, a task. Gosh, I I just, I'm just really holding that piece right now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's really easy as a survivor of child sexual abuse to, you believe that everything that's wrong with you is your fault. I mean, I think as humans, we do that just because it's easier to think I did this to myself, or 
I just have poor health because I'm not good at taking care of myself or, or all these sort of like negative talk things that we have in our brains. Cause it's easier to think that like I did this and it's my fault than to think I didn't do this. It's not my fault. Someone else did this to me and I don't have the control to deal with it. It's easier when I feel like I have the control of saying that, that this is all my fault and I did these things. Um, and so it is like a really big, um, shift that has to happen in your mind to be able to name those things and unpack them for yourself. I often think of it like a cardboard. This is just, I think everyone has their own version of how they think of it. But for myself, I think of it as just sort of like a cardboard box that I just shoved all my trauma into. And I closed those flaps and I shoved it to the back of my brain because it was not safe in my childhood or even in my sort of early adult years to unpack that box. Um, and so then as I'm like navigating adulthood, it's like, sort of like the first step is just like naming that there's a box back there and like recognizing that. And then it's just sort of like sliding that box out and like peeking, like opening one little flap and being like, oh, there's some stuff in there I got to deal with. And, and as my healing process has moved forward, it's just sort of like opening all of those, um, I'm doing a really good mime impression right now, opening all these flaps in the box and like looking at everything that's in there and like putting it in the light and really deciding for myself what all these things were and naming it is part of, I think, the healing process for, you know, at least how I think of it for myself. But it's really hard in childhood. You, you learn a lot of messed up concepts that you have to then sort of unlearn. I think Leah also something that I have seen and found is uh, when children, they have been sexually abused, any type of abuse, uh, you know, they wanted to keep secret, they are afraid, they are ashamed, but when they come forward and they speak out and they tell their parents what is going on, many parents or adults, they don't believe the child. They think the child is lying or is, is the child's imagination or, or the child is just uh, making up, you know, that story. So that is more traumatizing for the child, you know? So when you grow up and you become an adult, uh, I think, you know, that guilty part or, or, or feeling like a rejected from the loved ones when you are telling them something happens to you. So, so is that a normal, I mean, like a normal um, reaction when you grow up, when you are an adult and you feel a, like a failure? Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I think most people don't tell because it is so hard and so scary and you have to have the words for it and believe that someone is going to, you know, believe you, especially when we're talking about, once again, the mo most likely person to harm you is someone that is already in your life, cares about you, is a family member. People don't want to believe those bad things about people that they love or know or trust. And so, you know, for a lot of people, they don't tell an adult in childhood and then get into adulthood. And it's really hard to name it. 
especially if what happened to you was pre-verbal or so young that you just don't have language for it. You know, when we're talking about like 15, 16, 17, you might start to have some language. But before that, it's it's really hard to even know what to name these experiences as, right? So it's really hard to, to share it. But then to imagine, you know, sharing it in childhood and the people that you love and trust, not only someone that you loved and trust harmed you, but other people that you loved and trusted didn't believe you, didn't stop the abuse, didn't um, do something about it, makes you feel really powerless. And how do you not bring that powerlessness into your adulthood. That is a lesson you learn deep in childhood from that experience. And how does that not just fully impact the rest of your life and how you um, relate to other people? The When you asked about lifetime effects of child sexual abuse, you know, I, I mentioned health. And then the second most common one that sort of comes to my mind is relational, is you know, the way that you trust other people or love other people or set boundaries with other people um, is deeply impacted by what happened to you in childhood, exactly what you were sharing, Arena, and also just relationships in general have power and control and require communication. And all of that is connected to the, to the deep lessons you learned in child sexual abuse about um, people and trust and love. Oh, I, I think that's so powerful to hear. And in my mind, I imagine that makes it really challenging in adulthood to talk about what happened and to um, seek that help, you know, whether that's through advocacy or therapy or, you know, just taking a peek at that box because, you know, you don't want to tell anybody else it happened because, you know, potentially you've had some past experiences where, you know, folks haven't responded very well. And so I, I imagine there's fear that you kind of, that someone may learn throughout a lifetime about disclosing. There's also the, absolutely. And also there's this thing that I, I, I'm hoping I'm going to find good words for, for, to describe it in this moment. But like, we also have this idea um, about how we're in community with other people that when we meet someone, we know everything about them, what they share. And so sometimes it's hard, I think, as survivors to, in adulthood, tell all these people you've built relationships with, your, you know, your spouse, your family, your friends, your work, whatever, as this is coming up for you, that like, you've maybe known me as one way and one idea I had about my childhood or relationships that I had in childhood. But now as I'm like pulling that box out the back and peeking in it, like I'm reforming new in adulthood, new ideas about what my childhood was like. Cause maybe in childhood, I thought that my relationship to that person was, was special and we had a special connection and I, you know, deeply harmed in that relationship. But when you then peek at that relationship from the perspective of like a fully um, developed brain and the life experience of an adult, you can see the ways that you see that experience differently. Um, there was just a show on Hulu about, it was called A Teacher, that was about um, a teacher who starts an inappropriate sexual relationship with a student. And I feel like um, there's lots of things I didn't love about the show, but I think the one thing that I really liked about it was in the last episode, in the last like 10 minutes, it's been 10 years since they've seen each other in this relationship that he sort of 
believes is consensual in his teen years. And it's been 10 years and he sees her again. And he, as an adult, can see all the ways that he was not responsible for that relationship and that she is to blame for this harm that has come to him. And he gets to rename that relationship for himself in adulthood. But that's something we're often not taught to do, I think, in our culture, um, to like re uh, see our relationships in new ways or to name this new aspect of our life when it comes about into adulthood. It's hard to explain because like for myself, I don't think I ever forgot that the abuse happened, but I see it in a different way. I can name it in a different way. I experience it in a different way in adulthood. And so, um, those were ways that I couldn't name it in high school and in college and in like my early relationships with people. And in some ways I've had to like come out as a survivor of child sexual abuse because, you know, when we have these experiences in adulthood, we have the opportunity to name them in adulthood. But when they happen in childhood, kind of have to like come back to them in adulthood. And that can be just really hard to name in a, in a new way, if that makes sense. Hopefully I described that. I don't know if I, if I put it into the right words, but it's this like complex concept I think about a lot. That makes a lot of sense to me. And for me, I'm kind of a psychology nerd. So I, I hear that sometimes there may even be like a cognitive dissonance there because when we are kiddos, you know, we, we may not be able to hold two things at the same time. And that's that learning piece that you kind of talked about at the beginning, right? Um, and so we, you know, kind of throw one of the things into the back corner of our mind. And then in adulthood, we get to kind of reframe that and rename it, as you mentioned. And so, yeah, I, I just love that. But all the while, before I could name these things for myself, right, before I could you know, come out as a survivor of child sexual abuse and, and, you know, at this point in my life, mostly name the ways that it's harmed me, to, you know, to my partner and to my family and to my community. Um, I'm, st- I, you know, I was still struggling with all the effects. One I think about a lot is, um, you know, as especially as we're talking about this, like, relational lifelong impact. Um, one that I think is sort of a good um, example, I guess, is for me, um, I, I struggled deeply with boundaries for most of my life. (laughs) Because for me, like I said before, that, that secrecy in childhood, the secret felt awful. It felt disgusting. I could feel it in the pit of my stomach, right? I deeply, deeply disliked this feeling of secrecy. And so for me, once I started to be able to name a little bit of that piece and the child sexual abuse and start to grapple with it in therapy and in my really, really close personal relationships, but maybe not with my broader community. I didn't want that feeling ever again in my entire life. And so nothing could be a secret. I could, I had no boundaries with any person in the world because I didn't want boundaries because that felt like a version of secrecy. And guess what? That's not a great way to have relationships with people and boundaryless relationships are not healthy. Right. And so this is just like one of the ways that, you know, we as survivors cope with our, you know, sexual abuse into adulthood. There's so many, I mean, that's just one really specific way, but there's just, you know, thousands of ways that people cope into adulthood. And I think one of the hard things also 
that I, I don't hear our movement talking a lot about is that not only do I need to heal from the child sexual abuse, but I also need to heal from the coping mechanisms that I used um, that no longer feel good to me and that caused harm in my relationships and in my life. Um, so, you know, I can't name all those ways for myself, but for a lot of people, it's, you know, using drugs and alcohol or self-harm or, you know, exercising a lot of control over your body, like disordered eating or being a workaholic or um, using sex and sexuality as a, a mechanism of healing that isn't always, doesn't always come out as like safe and healthy or feel good to us later in life when we're able to kind of with a full full concept of everything, look back at things. And it's so hard because the child sexual abuse, obviously, is so complicated and so harmful and so traumatic that we need to heal from it. But sometimes, especially when I talk to other survivors, I just feel this way that like, it's the coping mechanisms that we need to heal from that like hurt the most because we feel like we did it, right? Like someone else harmed us in childhood. That's not my fault. But what is my fault is the ways that I maybe harmed my community or my relationships or my own body in coping with that. And that I feel like I do have some say in or I did have some control over. And so I have even more guilt and shame around that, even though I know logically that we don't get to pick our coping mechanisms. You reach for what's available and what's going to get you through in that moment. And we should be grateful that they got us through still there's this whole piece that that um that we also need to heal from the ways that we coped too so how do we go from that point a to point b you know from that vast lifetime effect of trauma to that healing and that you know piece of healthy relationships healthy coping skills what's the roadmap there Oh God, this is such a big question. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking big, beautiful questions today. So um, there is no roadmap. Um, everyone is different. I'm certain that's the answer you knew you would get from me. <laughs> um, but I think for everyone, it looks different. For so many people, I think there is that, like I said, that like inciting event that sort of brings it all up for you again in adulthood. And for so many survivors, after that happens, like you can't look away again. Um, I think for so many survivors, it's like once it gets brought up, it feels impossible to shove it back in that box. Like even if you desperately want to shove it back in that box in the back of your brain, it's like it is just bubbling out and you can't not. And so, um, you know, everyone has a different path. But for me, and I think for a, a lot of the survivors that I've had relationships with, it's it is sort of opening that box and just naming it and seeing that it's there and acknowledging that it exists and then picking out these pieces and figuring out how they fit into your life. And for me, I, I'm still, you know, I'm still certainly on that path. I don't think I'll ever get to the end um, that I'm still finding ways that the sexual abuse has impacted my life. Uh, and every time I find a new way, I used to dread it. It used to be awful. And I would be, I would feel so much grief and shame around finding another way that somehow it wormed its way into my life. Uh, but I've gotten to a place where I'm 
grateful when I find another way because it's something else that I can address head on. I can look at, I can deal with, I can find options to it. I can talk to my community that is also filled with so many child sexual abuse survivors and figure out like, what have you done around this? How have you coped with this and try to find a way forward to heal? And so I think, you know, that looks so different for so many people. Um, but I think a good starting place is just sort of naming it and um, realizing the ways that it's impacted your life. Uh, I think there is some sense of ownership once you feel that way. And I think for a lot of people, it is some, some version of um, lifting that silence. It is um, talking about it to your family and to your community and naming it and being out about it because that secrecy feels so awful that it can feel revolutionary. I, I've known survivors that like their whole journey is really just getting to say it out loud. And that has helped so many parts of their life. Just that one simple act of being able to name it, um, name it and say it out loud and have other people hear it and have other people believe them and support them. And so a lot of people turn to activism, volunteering, working with advocacy programs, helping other survivors, feeling like you're not alone, you're not the only one, this happened and people believe you, I think is a huge, huge step. There's truly like thousands of things. So <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how many to say, there's just so many. Um, I think another, uh, another place, at least for myself, that was really important is um, getting in touch with my body again, because I learned, like many survivors, a deep lesson in childhood that my body is not my own. My body is not meant for me. Um, my body doesn't bring me joy. Harm happens to my body, right? Those are really deep lessons. And so I'm still very much on this journey of teaching my relearning and teaching myself that my body is my own and my body can feel joy. And so doing things that make my body feel strong and feel happy, whether that's dancing or hiking. For me, um, I started by swimming. That was kind of one of the first things I did was I went to a gym that had a lot of lap lanes um, and had sort of a hilarious first appointment where I was supposed like required to meet with a personal instructor at the gym that was like sort of their policy and he's like what are your goals and I'm like to get in touch with my body because I'm a child sexual abuse survivor <laughs> like, <laughs> they did not know what to do with that um, but I started like swimming laps and I just remembered how much I loved feeling in connection with my body and feeling water. I'm a little water baby. I'm a Pisces. And so when I started swimming laps, like the first cup, I kid you not, this is just like so real. It's like cinematic. But what happened was I started swimming laps and the first couple of times that I would go, like I couldn't put my head under the water to swim the laps because I was smiling and laughing because it just felt so good to be in my body and to be in water that like I couldn't be underwater with my like, like laughing and smiling with my mouth open like my mouth would hurt at the end of swimming laps because I was smiling so big so just like finding some of those things that like make you feel good in your body and like help you learn this lesson that like your body is your own I think is, is a huge one that was really important to me. 
I agree with you. I think that is the one of the most difficult thing for a survivor, uh, accept a, a survivor that has been abused as a child and even an, as an adult, uh, accepting a, a, its own body. You know, having a good relationship, a healthy relationship with your own uh, body, with yourself. I think that is the most the most challenging uh, thing to overcome. Absolutely. I mean, how many of us don't even have good relationships with our bodies and aren't child sexual abuse survivors, right? Like it is a deeply hard thing to do to have a good relationship with your body. And then you add child sexual abuse on top of that. It's really, um, it's really complicated. And for so many survivors, I think sex and sexuality gets wrapped up in that too. It's really complicated. And it's something that like we as a culture don't, we feel really uncomfortable talking about. Um, I, I think you mentioned um, in my intro, but I mostly work with rural communities. And so like a lot of us that grew up in rural communities, we don't get good sex education. We don't have it modeled for us that we talk about sex and sexuality in our close relationships. And so um, it's often a very secret thing. And so then when you include the child sexual abuse, it's it's really complicated. And so, um, figuring out the dynamics of like what healthy sexuality feels like, figuring out what's my pleasure versus what's someone else's pleasure and how do I hold both of those things at once, like knowing how to set boundaries for yourself. These are, I mean, these are deeply complicated things for all of us, whether a child sexual abuse survivor or not. It's just, there's a whole other layer when you add that child sexual abuse on. And so I think that's something else that um, is really important as survivors that we figure out and that our community can help us with and, and normalize that it's okay to talk to your community about your sex, about sex and your sex life and your body and um, that you can create family, uh, whatever that means to you, um, relationships and, and friendships around you where like that's normal and you're allowed to, to be exploratory and, um, and in conversations and, and to, to, pick apart that and that your community will hear you and not judge you and is right there with you also trying to figure out their lives because we're all just trying to figure out how to be adults. <laughs> wow, I, I think that's so important. And I know I really love your perspective on how community is so important in healing. And I, I'm just picking up so much too about the um, sexuality piece that isn't talked about enough. And I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I'm curious how the community can support all of that and how we as a larger community can relearn how to support survivors, how to have these conversations, um, how to just be the best community for each other. It's a really good question. And I think my first my first thought or my first answer is really, it's it's sort of what we named at the top of this conversation, which is that child sexual abuse happens, um, particular, it just, it happens, but it particularly happens to communities where, you know, folks believe that they can harm that person with impunity, whether that is um, immigrants or people of color or people with disability, right? These, these uh, populations that people that commit violence feel like 
no one's going to believe this person. Nothing's going to happen to me if they say this, right? And so I think a huge place as a community that we can do is, is make it so that um, people that could hurt the people that we love know that you, you can't hurt people without impunity, that um, we as a community will believe these people and we will hold you accountable and we will support this person. Um, and that means, you know, as a community being actively anti-racist and it means examining our own privilege and being able to name racism and other oppressions and being comfortable with that because those are the things that make people vulnerable. And so those are the things that when we, um, we don't ignore them, we hold them up to light, make it harder for someone to harm those people. Um, I think also in much smaller ways, because that can feel really big, um, in, in smaller ways, the ways that as a community, I think we can support people is, you know, step one, listening to this podcast. <laughs> Great job, you're doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also is, you know, to recognize how prevalent it is. And once again, to recognize that children grow up to be adults. And so that we don't forget that this, um, that we don't act as though this only happens to children and then they go on with their lives and everything is fine, but that the people in your life, whether they're children or adults may have been impacted by this. And to try um, to demonstrate that you are a trustworthy, safe person to talk to, um, let survivors take the lead, uh, give, give options and let them know that they can say no. For a lot of adult survivors of child sexual abuse, saying no is really hard because you were not allowed, you were taught the deep lesson in childhood that you're not allowed to say no. And when you say no, one no, when you say no, no one will listen. And so I think a huge, um, a huge thing that we can do for adults is, uh, is to hear them when they say no, or hear them when they say what they want, let them take the lead, um, help them figure out options, but let them pick their path forward. Um, and something that I think a lot about also is um, being, a, um, being a marker of time. If there is a survivor in your life that is struggling and is um, trying to heal from sexual abuse into adulthood and navigate their life, it can feel so exhausting and that you are not moving forward as a survivor, it can feel that way. And so having those people in your life that can be a marker of time and uh, can, can say, I know you're struggling right now, but you a year ago would have been struggling so much more, or you would have been struggling in these really specific ways that I see that you're not right now. And I see that what you're, what you're grappling with or what you're healing or what thing you're pulling out of the box today or right now is really hard, but like, look how much other stuff you already pulled out of that box, like, and be someone that can mark that time for them because it can really feel like you're going nowhere when in reality, like you are on the journey. It's just that the journey is not straightforward. And so it can be really helpful to have someone that's just like, I see the work you're doing and you're making progress and like, I'm here for you. I think there are so many great things there that I want to kind of mirror and echo because I think it's incredibly important to um, just keep saying these things until they start happening um, in our communities and things like that. Um, but that being a cheerleader for survivors and being that person who believes and supports 
and who really just talks about this issue because it's it's happening in our communities. It is. And so we need to acknowledge that and we need to be supportive of those who are going through it. I also was thinking while you were talking about the oppression piece and the harming with impunity, we had a really great um, conversation during a law enforcement training yesterday, actually, um, where the officers were able to identify um, different vulnerabilities with the survivors that they were working with and how that perpetrator had specifically chosen those survivors because they knew that those survivors would not be believed because they were um, particularly vulnerable because they had um, differing levels of communication and things like that. And so those are things to be so aware of when we are working with our community and things like that. Um, and I'm really happy that folks are able to start to identify that as well. I'm curious, um, you know, how we can break some of the stigma too, or why um, I, I know um, part of our intro to our podcast is that, you know, people often say this is a sensitive subject. We don't talk about this here and everything. And so um, I think sometimes it can be really scary to stand up and um, talk about sexual assault and to talk about sexuality and all of those things because they are taboo in our rural communities. I've been dreading this question. Sorry. <laughs> so it's really hard to answer, right? Mm. Like I'm not an expert in knowing how to destigmatize our communities. Mm -hmm. um, but really, I think that as a culture in general, we're getting to this place where um, we're having all these really big conversations around um, so many topics publicly, no matter what community that you're in. And so I think we're getting to this place where we're starting to be able to frame the consequences. I don't know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I don't have a good answer to this, Nicole. <laughs> that's fair. I mean, that's it's a challenging question and that's the one that we've been struggling with. So um, I kind of just- I just want, the answer I want to give is like, just suck it up <laughs> and just like, deal with it, community. We're going to talk about it. I don't care what you say, yes. but that's not a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that we all feel that way, though. <laughs> well, one of the things that the, our organization is doing that I, I am really proud of is starting doing prevention in the schools with little kids. So we go to second graders uh, and we, we have a, a, you know, a prevention team and we teach children about how to respect their bodies. So I think this is super important. Okay, this is one thing that I think <laughs> we should do is to start talking with our children about sexuality when they are little. For example, okay, I am originally from Colombia, South America, and in Colombia, we don't have a taboo talking with our children when they are one year, two years old about naming, name, naming the parts of the body with the correct name. So my son, when he was two years old, he knew the name of the parts of the body and many things, but here... I found when I moved here and I found that the schools and parents don't want to talk with children about sexuality because they think they are too little, but we are in a world 
crazy world right now that they get bombarded from so many, you know, so many in so many ways, friends, devices. My, my, my nephews, they are five years old, four years old, and they use, they use a phone. They use, they play with the phone and with iPad. So what happened is that they are getting information, you know, all the time. So who is talking with our children? Other people. We need, this is what I think, <laughs> we need to start talking with our children when they are little. Start, you know, teaching in good ways. Of course, we are not going to uh, start talking about big conversations about sex. No, no, but, you know, learning. This is the part, this is the name. Don't let anybody to touch you. If somebody touch you, let me know. Those type of things. So sex with children should stop being a taboo. This is my thought. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> You've convinced me. I'm on board. I think too that, I, I don't know, I, I see out in the community that there are these things that we're seeing that um, violence, that substance use, that, um, you know, sexual violence that, you know, is so pervasive. And as we talked about all of the long-term lifetime effects, you know, these are some really insidious issues. And I think that it is so much more important to get over our mental block with talking about sexuality and sexual violence and oppression in order to stop these things from happening. I think that, you know, if we think of it as a scale, you know, it, it's much more um, important to talk about and to prevent these things. I mean, and I think that we're getting better as a society of being able to see and name the causes of so many of the ills that we have. Like, it is an enormous factor to becoming incarcerated that you're a survivor of child sexual abuse or that you've experienced some form of trauma. It is a huge indicator of, you know, in substance abuse treatment facilities that a lot of those people are children of uh, are adults that have experienced child sexual abuse or some form of trauma, right? Like, I think we're starting to be able to really finally see that trauma causes a lot of these impacts that we are then like judging so many people for and punishing people for when the reality is it's all just goes back to so much trauma. And so hopefully we're able to just destigmatize this because we've all experienced some form of trauma. Lots of us, it's sexual violence, but there's all kinds of trauma that we've experienced, racism, oppression, grief, um, loss. Like there's so much trauma that we've experienced that also causes these problems. And so like, we just have to stop being like judging each other and being upset that these things are happening because we all have trauma. So let's actually address the trauma instead of just like incarcerating everyone. <laughs> I think that is like feeds into what my next question was going to be as far as why should the community be invested in helping out and in um, this process of healing from trauma and being a support to survivors is that idea that we're all affected by trauma and if we want healthier communities, if we want healthier people, if we want to just be kind, loving human beings. It's a reason to be invested. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that, you know, like I said, that it's one in four 
boys or one in four girls and one in six boys, it's just such, such a huge, significant portion of our population. And it impacts every facet of our life. It impacts health. It impacts mental health. It impacts physical health. It impacts relationships. It impacts spirituality. It impacts education. It impacts your work life. Like there is no person in the world that has not been impacted by child sexual abuse, whether you were a survivor or not. The people that you know or love have been impacted or the people that you come in contact with at the grocery store or at your job or at your school, like also are experiencing child, have also experienced child sexual abuse. And so it's just, do we want to take care of our community or don't we? I think is a, is really the place that we're at is, are we going to choose to care about our collective health or are we only going to see ourselves as individuals that can't impact each other? And just every lesson we've ever learned has taught us that we can't be individuals, that like we have to just do this together. Yes, I agree with you, completely agree. We have to do this together. We have to work together to help our communities. I don't know. I think that this is a hard thing to bring up, but I think something that's also hard for us to grapple with is that a lot of the people that harm children also have been harmed as children. And so if we're going to be that caring community, we can't just care about the survivor. We have to care about the person that harmed them. That's a really hard place yes. to be in. But I it's agree a, with you completely, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's, we just, it's a really hard truth to, it's like you said before, Nicole, we got to hold both true, both truths yes. at once. And it's really hard as children to do that. But as adults, we got to learn to do it. Well, and I think it's so much easier to scapegoat the person who caused the harm, right? Because, you know, we feel anger towards that person and we feel anger towards that event. And so we want to cause the same harm back. But when we really look at the root cause, we can't necessarily feel that anger. We might feel different emotions instead, emotions that don't feel as satisfying to us. Um, especially if there's somebody who we love that we're trying to protect. Um, but we have to take a hard look at that. Very well put. Exactly. People that hurts is because they have been hurting from someone else. They have been hurt. So yes, I agree with you, Leah. This is, that is the root cause also because we need to go deeper, not just with the child that has been abused. What you said, the person who abused the child has issues, has problems. That person was abused also. That person had a background that, that we as a society need also to look into that. So I, I'm curious of tangible things that our communities can do to support survivors, both those survivors who have caused harm um, and those who have experienced harm and what that looks like. Not that those are mutually exclusive, but what are those tangible or even creative steps? Being that safe person in your small community, not your sort of like community with a capital C, but your, your friends, your family, the people around you that you interact with every day, um, you know, being, um, is demonstrating that you are that trustworthy, safe person that is open to hearing things is 
uh, is I think the way that you sort of invite disclosures um, or, or signal to people that you're a safe person for you, for them to sort of talk to about things. I think also like help your local rape crisis center, like help your local program, whatever that looks like. I'm a national technical assistance provider for advocacy programs. So I think a lot, a lot all day about the ways that advocacy programs can help survivors. And a lot of what I tell people is what a lot of what I tell advocacy programs is, you know, get more creative with your healing that um, just helping someone go through the criminal legal system and, and, and hold the person that harmed them accountable is not healing. Um, It might be a healing component for some people, but for most survivors, it's not the end all be all to what's going to fix their life. It's so many other things, right? It's everything else we've talked about. So you can be as a community member, whatever it is, do you have a passion for cooking? Are you a musician? Are you a massage therapist? Like whatever this thing is that you've got this like specialty for in your life that like you're really passionate about, like offer that skill to your local advocacy program because all of those things are healing. Like for myself, I'm, I really love art. I was an art major in college. I, um, I really love textiles. I like to like, I'm right now I'm learning to sew my own clothes. I love to knit and all of these things, right? Those are really healing things for survivors. You're incorporating your body into the creative process. You're learning that your hands and your body has like skills and strengths to it. You are being in community with other people when you sit around and like all learn how to knit together or something like the building community. Those are all things that are really healing for survivors. So whatever is this like passion, this excitement that you have, like offer that skill, teach a class to survivors, incorporating all five of your senses is really important to the healing process because all five of your senses were harmed when you were um, harmed in childhood. And so like, you've got to bring all of them back with you. So whatever this cool, exciting thing is that you just like love to do on the weekends, maybe you're like really rad at sport, uh, skateboarding. I just watched a movie about skateboarders, which is in my head. Like maybe you're like a really cool skateboarder, like teach that to some people or whatever. Like build community by doing things you love and bringing joy back into the healing process. Something that I think is really a huge game changer for children that were sexually abused is knowing that you can heal. People don't talk about it that way, right? But like being able to, to, to name that like you can heal from that child sexual abuse and the process can be joyful. It does not need to be you crying alone in your therapist's office every week for five years, like you can also bring joy into the process. And so be someone in your community that wants to bring joy to other people. Go hiking with members in your community, like create a map of the coolest hiking locations to give to your local advocacy program to give to survivors, right? Like there's something that you love that's like super cool and exciting that you can offer to your local advocacy program that I think is going to be really healing for survivors. I so appreciate you saying that. And I, I think, first of all, huge plug for our community <laughs> in Southeast Indiana. Um, please let us know if there's something that you really love to do that you would love to share your talents and skills for. Um, we 
have gardens and crocheting materials and things like that, but um, I will be very transparent and that is not my strong suit. So happy to accept volunteers for that. But I think also, I think it's important for us to break that stigma too of what our services are and what, like you said, healing looks like, because I think most people who walk into my doors and um, are going to meet with me for the first time think that advocacy is just us sitting in an office and that person telling me all about every single terrible experience they had. And really what it looks like is, you know, hey, we can go to the animal shelter and just pet puppies or, hey, we can um, do an art workshop or we can crochet or we can um, go for a walk and just, you know, talk about whatever. We can you know, try out this garden and take those herbs that we have and make it into something really cool. Um, so there are all sorts of options. Healing can be fun. It can be joyous. So that is my passion as far as advocacy is, is making that process as life-giving as possible. So. Totally. I mean, I think we have this really like law and order SVU AA kind of idea in our minds about what the healing process is going to look like, which feels not fun and pretty scary. And I would not be into it now. <laughs> like if that's what was presented to me, I would be like, no, thank you. But that's why I think community building is so huge, huge part of the healing process, right? Is like everything you just described is building community and is learning how to be in relationship with other people and learning new relationship skills and figuring out how to set your own boundaries. All of those things are happening when you're going to the zoo and petting cool animals, right? Like you're, you're being in relationship with other people and you're feeling good in your body and you're doing all these things. So like, why not have fun with it? I think we had a really great conversation about not only all of the ways that child sexual abuse can affect us, but all the ways that we can both heal in general and heal our communities. So um, I really appreciate you having this conversation with us, Leah. I, I just feel so kind of like enlightened and hopeful um, after talking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here and for the wonderful information you have provided today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed getting to share all my wacky ideas with both of you today. <laughs> I, I'm gonna reframe that as genius ideas. <laughs> yeah, so any last things that you want to impart upon our listeners? Um, any um, information that you wanna share? Um, it has not come out yet and it won't for several more months, but I'm working on a podcast series with other adult survivors of child sexual abuse who are in the anti-sexual violence movement. And so it's going to be a series of 12 conversations about the needs of adult survivors of child sexual abuse. So it's, it's geared more towards advocates, but I think survivors and community members would get a lot out of it. And we sort of dive into I, I really just sort of gave you little droplets and it's going to just be an ocean of information and thoughts. Um, so check that out. And something that we do at the end of every episode is we remind folks to bring their curiosity and their compassion to every interaction with adult survivors. Because I think that curiosity is one of the um, best tools you got in your box um, 
it's something I use every day uh, and something that I think is, is my favorite advocacy tool that applies in all situations is just like, ooh, I'm curious, tell me more. Or I have like five other follow-up questions to everything you just said. I'm so excited to talk more. I think being curious about your own journey as a survivor and uh, being curious about your community members, I think is a huge, um, is a huge plus as you sort of navigate this topic in your own community. Absolutely. Keep us posted about this because I'll definitely want to share this on um, our social media pages and maybe we'll, um, you know, be able to plug it in our future podcasts and things like that too. So you can be sure to check that out and tune in. Um, It sounds like it's going to be just phenomenal. So any other places that um, people can find more information about this subject? Um, Maybe I'll just share a couple of my favorite books that I've read recently. So probably my go-to that I love, love, love is called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk, which I think is really a a great way to understand not just child sexual abuse, but all the ways that trauma impacts our lives. And my favorite part about the book is that the, maybe only the first, I don't know, I'm going to go with like 40% is about the ways the trauma impacts us. And the back like 60% is all about like, and here's everything you can do to heal from it. So it's a lot of really great, um, solid information. You can see all the many tabs I've got. Um, and the, there are not very many modern books about child sexual abuse. Um, the Courage to Heal is probably one of the first. It's like the Bible. It is a huge text when it comes to child sexual abuse, but it was written before I was born. So um, another more modern book that I really like is called Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Child Sexual Abuse, which was edited by Aisha Shahida Simmons, who we get to interview in our podcast series, which is amazing. Um, And it is, I think, like something like 44 independent essays from adult survivors of child sexual abuse, all within the African diaspora. Yeah, those are my two favorite books right now. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing those, um, Leah. I guess I'll share, I'll share one more, which is called The Sum of My Parts, A Survivor's Story of Dissociative Identity Disorder, Disorder, um, which was written by Olga Trujillo, and it is a memoir. I will give a sort of a, a warning that there is a lot more details about the actual experience of child sexual abuse than the other two texts that I mentioned, because it is sort of a memoir of Olga's life. But I think there's such beautiful descriptions of dissociation, um, which I think is a really important concept for a lot of child sexual abuse survivors to navigate. And Olga does a really great job of, um, in the first chapter, she mentions uh, sort of where you can start the book if you would like to skip the chapters about her actual child sexual abuse and just learn more about her discovering um, dissociative identity disorder and her journey sort of into adulthood. Fantastic. And Olga is another one of my advocacy heroes. I know. I met her and I was like, I think that I feel like I'm meeting a celebrity and um, I get to work with them like every day now on this project. Um, And are a very, they're very big part of the podcast series. They're in multiple episodes of the podcast series. So if you dig Olga, you're really going to like the podcast series. <laughs> awesome. 
I am so excited for it. And I am so thankful for you, Leah, for joining us today. Um, and I just want all of our listeners to know if you've had an unwanted sexual experience and want to speak with an advocate, um, or if you want to take some more steps to support survivors in the community, please call our helpline at 812-932-7233. Our advocates are available to speak with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're welcome to come join us in petting puppies or gardening or any of those fun ways of finding our joy and our healing. So thank you so much for listening um, and be sure to share. 